Section 1 of the Afghan Wars, 1839-42 through 42 and 1878-80. through 80. Part 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Afghan Wars, 1839-42 through 42 and 1878-80. through 80. Part 2. By Archibald Forbes section one the first campaign a brief period of peace intervened between the ratification of the treaty of gundamuk on may thirtieth eighteen seventy nine and the renewal of hostilities consequent on the massacre at kabul of sir louis Cavagnari and the whole entourage of the mission of which he was the head there was nothing identical or even similar in the motives of the two campaigns and regarded purely on principle they might be regarded as two distinct wars rather than as successive campaigns of one and the same war but the interval between them was so short that the ink of the signatures to the treaty of gundamuk may be said to have been scarcely dry when the murder of the british envoy tore that document into bloody shreds and it seems the simplest and most convenient method to designate the two years of hostilities from november eighteen seventy eight to september eighteen eighty as the second afghan war notwithstanding the three months interval of peace in the summer of eighteen seventy nine dost mohammed died in eighteen sixty three and after a long struggle his son sphir ali possessed himself of the throne bequeathed to him by his father the relations between shir ali and the successive viceroys of india were friendly, although not close. The consistent aim of the British policy was to maintain Afghanistan in the position of a strong, friendly, and independent state, prepared in certain contingencies to cooperate in keeping at a distance foreign intrigue or aggression. While this object was promoted by donations of money and arms to abstain from interference in the eternal affairs of the country, while according a friendly recognition, to the successive occupants of its throne without undertaking indefinite liabilities in their interest the aim in a word was to utilize afghanistan as a buffer state between the northwestern frontier of british india and russian advances from the direction of central asia Svir ali was never a very comfortable ally he was of a saturnine and suspicious nature and he seems also to have had an overweening sense of the value of the position of afghanistan interposed between two great powers profoundly jealous one of the other he did not secede with lord northbrook in an attempt to work on that viceroy by playing off the bogey of russian aggression and as the consequence of this failure he allowed himself to display marked evidences of disaffected feeling cognizance was taken of this attitude of extreme reserve and early in eighteen seventy six lord lytton arrived in india charged with instructions to break away from the policy designated as that of masterly inactivity and to initiate a new basis of relations with afghanistan in its amir lord lytton's instructions directed him to dispatch without delay a mission to kabul whose errand would be to require of the emir the acceptance of a 
permanent resident and free access to the frontier positions of afghanistan on the part of british officers who should have opportunity of conferring with the amir on matters of common interest with becoming attention to their friendly counsels those were demands notoriously obnoxious to the afghan monarch and the afghan people compliance with them involved sacrifice of independence and the afghan loathing of ferengi officials in their midst had been fiercely evinced in the long bloody struggle and awful catastrophe recorded in earlier pages of this volume probably the emir had he desired would not have dared to concede such demands on any terms no matter how full of advantage but the terms which lord lytton was instructed to tender as an equivalent were strangely meagre the emir was to receive a money gift and a precarious stipend regarding which the new viceroy was to deem it inconvenient to commit his government to any permanent pecuniary obligation the desiderated recognition of dhula jan as Sphir ali's successor was promised with a qualifying reservation that the promise did not imply or necessitate any intervention in the eternal affairs of the state the guarantee against foreign aggression was vague and indefinite and the government of india reserved to itself an entire freedom of judgment as to the character of circumstances involving the obligation of material support the emir replied to the notice that a mission was about to proceed to kabul by a courteous declinature to receive an envoy assigning several spacious reasons he was quite satisfied with the existing friendly relations and desired no change in them he could not guarantee the safety of the envoy and his people if he admitted a british mission he would have no excuse for refusing to receive a russian one an intimation was conveyed to the emir that if he should persist in his refusal to receive the mission the viceroy would have no other alternative than to regard afghanistan as a state which had voluntarily isolated itself from the alliance and support of the british government the emir arranged that the vakil of the indian government should visit simla carrying with him full explanations in charge to lay before the viceroy sundry grievances which were distressing Sphir ali that functionary took back to kabul certain minor concessions but conveyed the message also that those concessions were contingent on the emir's acceptance of british officers about his frontiers and that it would be of no avail to send an envoy to the conference at peshawar for which sanction was given unless he were commissioned to agree to this condition as the fundamental basis of a treaty before the vakil quitted simla he had to listen to a truculent address from lord lytton in the course of which Sphir ali's position was genially likened to that of an earthen pipkin between two iron pots before sir lewis pelly and the emir's representative met at peshawar and january eighteen seventy seven sphere ali had not unnaturally been perturbed by the permanent occupation of Keta on the southern verge of his dominions as indicating along with other military dispositions an intended invasion the peshawar conference which from the first had little promise dragged on unsatisfactorily until terminated by the death of the emir's representative 
whereupon Sir Lewis Pelly was recalled by Lord Lytton. Notwithstanding the latter's cognizance that Sphere Ali was dispatching to Peshawar a fresh envoy authorized to assent to all the British demands. The justification advanced by Lord Lytton for this procedure was the discovery purported to have been made by Sir Lewis Pelly that the emir was intriguing with General Kaufman at Tashkend. Since Sheer Ali was an independent monarch, it was no crime on his part to enter into negotiations with another power than Great Britain, although if the worried and distracted man did so, the charge of folly may be laid to him, since the Russians were pretty certain to betray him after having made a cat's paw of him, and since in applying to them he involved himself in the risk of hostile action on the part of the British. The wisdom of Lord Lytton's conduct is not apparent. The truculent policy of which he was the instrument was admittedly on the point of triumphing, and events curiously falsified his short-sighted anticipation of the unlikelihood, because of the Russo-Turkish war then impending, of any rapprochement between the emir and the Russian authorities in Central Asia, the viceroy withdrew his vakil from Kabul, and in the recognition of the emir's attitude of isolation and scarcely veiled hostility, Lord Salisbury authorized Lord Lytton to protect the British frontier by such measures as circumstances should render expedient, without regard to the wishes of the emir or the interests of his dynasty. Lord Lytton took no measures, expedient or otherwise, in the direction indicated by Lord Salisbury. The emir, as if he had been a petted boy consigned to the corner, was abandoned to his sullen isolation, and the Russians adroitly used him to involve us in a war which lasted two years, cost us the lives of many valiant men, caused us to incur an expenditure of many millions, and left our relations with Afghanistan in all essential respects in the same condition as Lord Lytton found them when he reached India with the new policy in his pocket. If the Russians could execute as thoroughly as they can plan skillfully, there would be hardly any limit to their conquests. When England was mobilizing her forces after the Treaty of San Stefano and ordering into the Mediterranean a division of sepoys drawn from the three presidencies of her Indian Empire, Russia for her part was concerting an important diversion in the direction of the northwestern frontier of that great possession. But for the opportune conclusion of the Treaty of Berlin, the question as to the ability of Sepoy troops stiffened by British regiments to cope with the mixed levies of the Tsar might have been tried out on stricken fields between the Oxus and the Indus. When Gortschakov returned from Berlin to St. Petersburg with his version of peace with honor, Bessarabia and Batum thrown in, Kaufman had to countermand the concentration of troops that had been in progress on the northern frontier of Afghanistan. But the Indian division was still much in evidence in the Mediterranean, its tents now gleaming on the brown slopes of Malta, now crowning the upland of Larnaca, and nestling among the foliage of Kyrenia. Kaufman astutely retorted on this demonstration by dispatching, not indeed in expedition, but in an embassy to Kabul, 
and when Stolietkov, the gallant defender of the Shipka Pass, rode into the Bala Hissar on August 11, 1878, Shir Ali received him with every token of cordiality and regard. No other course was now open to Her Majesty's government than to insist on the reception at Kabul of a British mission. The gallant veteran officer, Sir Neville Chamberlain, known to be held in regard by the Amir, was named as envoy, and an emissary was sent to Kabul in advance with information of the date fixed for the setting out of the mission. Shir Ali was greatly perplexed and begged for more time. It is not proper, he protested, to use pressure in this way. It will tend to a complete rupture. But Sir Neville Chamberlain was satisfied that the Amir was trifling with the Indian government, and he had certain information that the Amir, his ministers, and the Afghan outpost officers had stated plainly that, if necessary, the advance of the mission would be arrested by force. This was what in effect happened when, on September 21st, Major Kavagnati rode forward to the Afghan post in the Khyber Pass. The officer who courteously stopped him assured him that he had orders to oppose by force the progress of Sir Neville and his mission. So Kavagnati shook hands with the Afghan major and rode back to Peshawar. The viceroy sought permission to declare war immediately, notwithstanding his condition of unpreparedness but the home government directed him instead to require in temperate language an apology and the acceptance of a permanent mission presenting at the same time the ultimatum that if a satisfactory reply should not be received on or before the twentieth of november hostilities would immediately commence meanwhile military preparations were actively pushed forward the scheme of operations was as follows three columns of invasion were to move simultaneously, one through the Khyber Pass to Dhaka, another through the Khorram Valley south of the Khyber, with the Pehwar Pass as its objective, and a third from Keta into the Pishin Valley to march forward to Kandahar, after reinforcement by a division from Multan. To General Sir Sam Brown was assigned the command of the Khyber Column, consisting of about 10,000 men with 30 guns, to General Roberts the command of the Quorum Valley Column of about 5,500 men with 24 guns, and to General Bedolp the command of the Keta force, numbering some 6,000 men with 18 guns. When General Donald Stewart should bring out from Multan the division which was being concentrated there, he was to command the whole southern force moving on Kandahar. The reserve division gathering at Hassan Abdul and commanded by General Maud would support the Khyber force. Another reserve division massing at Sukhor under General Primrose would act in support of the Kandahar force. And a contingent contributed by the Sikh feudatory states and commanded by Colonel Watson was to do duty on the Qumrum line of communication. The general's commanding columns were to act independently of each other, taking instructions direct from army and government headquarters. No answer to the ultimatum was received from the emir, and on the morning of November 21st, Sir Sam Brown crossed the Afghan frontier and moved up the Khyber on Ali Muzjid with his 
third and fourth brigades and the guns overnight he had detached mcpherson's and teichler's brigades with a commission to turn the ali musjid position by a circuitous march the former charged to descend into the khyber pass in rear of the fortress and block the escape of its garrison the latter instructed to find if possible a position on the rotas heights on the proper left of the fortress from which a flank attack might be delivered about noon sir sam reached the shagai ridge and came under a brisk fire from the guns of ali musjid to which his heavy cannon and manderson's horse battery replied with good results the afghan position which was very strong stretched right athwart the valley from an entrenched line on the right to the rotis summit on the extreme left the artillery duel lasted about two hours and then sir sam determined to advance on the expectation that the turning brigades had reached their respective objectives he himself moved forward to the right upland on the opposite side of the khyber stream appleyard led the advance of his brigade against the afghan right no cooperation on the part of the turning brigades had made itself manifest up till dusk the right brigade had been brought to a halt in face of a precipitous cliff crowned by the enemy and it was wisely judged that to press the frontal attack further in the meantime would involve a useless loss of life sir sam therefore halted and sent word to appleyard to stay for the night his further advance merely holding the ridge which he had already carried but before this order reached him appleyard was sharply engaged with the enemy in their entrenched position and in the fighting which occurred before the retirement was effected two officers were killed a third wounded and a good many casualties occurred among the rank and file of the native detachments gallantly assailing the afghan entrenchments early next morning offensive operations were about to be resumed when a young officer of the ninth lancers brought intelligence that the afghan garrison had fled under cover of night whereupon the fort was promptly occupied the turning brigades had been delayed by the difficult country encountered but detachments from both had reached katakustia in time to capture several hundred fugitives of the ali musjid garrison the mass of it however its total strength was about four thousand men effected a retreat by the peshbalak track from the right of the entrenched position sir sam brown's advance to dhaka was made without molestation and on twentieth december he encamped on the plain of jalalabad where he remained throughout the winter maud's reserve division keeping open his communications through the khyber pass the hill tribes true to their nature gave great annoyance by their continual raids and several punitive expeditions were sent against them from time to time but seldom with decisive results the tribesmen for the most part carried off into the hills their movable effects and the destruction of their petty forts apparently gave them little concern for the most part they maintained their irreconcilable attitude hanging on the flanks of our detachments on their return march through the lateral passes to their camps and inflicting irritating if not very severe losses occasionally they thought proper to make nominal submission with tongue in cheek breaking out again when opportunity or temptation presented itself detailed description of those raids and counter-raids would be very tedious reading 
it was when starting to cooperate in one of those necessary but tantalizing expeditions that a number of troopers of the tenth hussars were drowned in a treacherous ford of the kabul river near jalalabad general roberts to whom the conduct of operations in the Kurum district had been entrusted crossed the frontier on november twenty first and marched up the valley with great expedition the inhabitants evinced friendliness bringing in livestock and provisions for sale reaching habib Kila on the morning of the twenty eighth he received a report that the afghan force which he knew to be opposed to him had abandoned its guns on the hither side of the pehwar koto and was retreating in confusion over that summit roberts promptly pushed forward in two columns building on the erroneous information that the enemy were in a hollow trying to withdraw their guns in reality they were already in their entrenched position on the summit of the koto he ordered cobbs the left column to turn the right of the supposed afghan position and debar the enemy from the kotul while the other column Thelwalls, was ordered to attack in front the object being to have the enemy between two fires cobb's leading regiment near the village of turai found its advance blocked by precipices and a withdrawal was ordered the advantage having been attained of forcing the enemy to disclose the position which he was holding further reconnaissances proved that the afghan line of defence extended along the crest of a lofty and broken mountainous range from the spingawai summit on the left to the pehwar kotul on the right centre the right itself resting on commanding elevations a mile further south the position had a front in all of about four miles it was afterwards ascertained to have been held by about thirty-five hundred regulars and a large number of tribal irregulars general robert's force numbered about thirty-one hundred men his scheme of operations he explained to his commanding officers on the evening of december first with the bulk of the force he himself was to make a circuitous night march by his right on the spingawai goto with the object of turning that position and taking the main afghan position on the pehwar koltul in reverse while brigadier cobb with whom were to remain the eighth queens and fifth punjab infantry regiments a cavalry regiment and six guns was instructed to assail the enemy's centre when the result of the flank attack on his left should have made itself apparent the turning column whose advance the general led in person consisted of the twenty ninth and i leading fifth gorkas and a mountain battery all under colonel gordon's command followed by a wing of the seventy-second highlanders second punjab infantry and twenty-third pioneers with four guns on elephants under brigadier thelwall the arduous march began at ten p m trending at first rearward to the pehwar village the course followed was then to the proper right up the rugged and steep spingawai ravine in the darkness part of thelwall's force lost its way and disappeared from ken further on a couple of shots were fired by disaffected pathans in the ranks of the twenty ninth n i that regiment was promptly deprived of the lead which was taken by the gorkha regiment and the column toiled on by a track described by general roberts as nothing but a mass of stones 
heaped into riches and furrowed into deep hollows by the action of the water day had not broken when the head of the column reached the foot of the steep ascent to the spengawai kotal the gorkas and the seventy-second rushed forward on the first stockade it was carried without a pause save to bayonet the defenders and stockade after stockade was swept over in rapid and brilliant secession in half an hour general roberts was in full possession of the spingawai defences and the afghan left flank was not only turned but driven in cobb was ordered by signal to cooperate by pressing on his frontal attack and roberts himself hurried forward on his enterprise of rolling up the afghan left and shaking its centre but this proved no easy task the afghans made a good defence and gave ground reluctantly they made a resolute stand on the further side of a narrow deep-cut ravine to dislodge them from which effort after effort was ineffectually made the general then determined to desist from pressing this line of attack and to make a second turning movement by which he hoped to reach the rear of the afghan centre he led the seventy-second wing three native regiments and ten guns in a direction which should enable him to threaten the line of the afghan retreat brigadier cobb since morning had been steadily although slowly climbing toward the front of the paywar kotal position after an artillery duel which lasted for three hours the afghan fire was partially quelled cobb's infantry pushed on and up from ridge to ridge and at length they reached a crest within eight hundred yards of the guns of the kotul whence their rifle fire compelled the afghan gunners to abandon their batteries meanwhile robert's second turning movement was developing and the defenders of the kotul placed between two fires and their line of retreat compromised began to waver brigadier cobb had been wounded but colonel drew led forward his gallant youngsters of the eighth and after toilsome climbing they entered the afghan position which his defenders had just abandoned leaving many dead eighteen guns and a vast accumulation of stores and ammunition colonel h goff pursued with his cavalry and possessed himself of several more guns which the afghans had relinquished in their precipitate flight the decisive success of the paywar kotul combat had not cost heavily the british losses were twenty-one killed and seventy-two wounded his sick and wounded sent back to fort Kurum, general roberts advanced to ali Kiel, and thence made a reconnaissance forward to the shuttergurton pass whose summit is distant from kabul little more than fifty miles its height is great upwards of eleven thousand two hundred feet but it was regarded as not presenting serious obstacles to the advance by this route of a force from the Kurum valley moving on kabul a misfortune befell the baggage guard on one of the marches in the trans paywar region when captains goad and powell lost their lives in a tribal onslaught the somewhat checkered experiences of general roberts in the cost valley need not be told in detail after some fighting and more marching he withdrew from that turbulent region altogether abjuring its pestilent tribesmen and all their works the Kurum force wintered in excellent health, spite of the rigorous climate, and toward the end of March 1879 its forward concentration about, about Ali Kale was ordered, which was virtually accomplished before the snow had melted from the passes in the later weeks of April. 
Adequate transportation had been got together and supplies accumulated. Colonel Watson's contingent was occupying the post along the valley, and General Roberts was in full readiness promptly to obey the orders to advance which he had been led to expect, and on which his brother General Sir Sam Brown had already acted to some extent. The march on Kandahar of the two divisions under the command of General Stuart had the character, for the most part, of a military promenade. The tramp across the deserts of northern Baluchistan were arduous. The Bolin and Guaga and the Kotjuk passes had to be surmounted, and the distances which both Bidulf and Stuart had to traverse were immensely in excess of those covered by either of the forces operating from the northwestern frontier line. But uneventful marches, however long and toilsome, do not call for detailed description. Stuart rode into Kandahar on January 8, 1879, and the troops as they arrived encamped on the adjacent plain. The governor and most of his officials, together with the Afghan cavalry, had fled toward Herat, the deputy governor remained to hand over the city to general stuart for commissariat reasons one division under stuart presently moved by the kabul road on kalati gizai which was found empty the afghan garrison having evacuated it simultaneously with stuart's departure from kandahar bidulf marched out a column westward toward the helmand remaining in that region until the third week in february on its return march to kandahar the rear guard had a sharp skirmish at kusht e nakud with alizai tribesmen of whom one hundred and sixty-three were left dead on the field soon after the return of stuart and bidolf to kandahar orders arrived that the former should retain in kandahar keta and pishin a strong division of all arms sending back to india the remainder of his command under bidolf the march to be made by the previously unexplored tal kotiali route to the eastward of the pishin valley before sam brown moved forward from jalalabad to gundamuk he had been able to report to the viceroy the death of shir ali that unfortunate man had seen with despair the departure on december tenth of the last russian from kabul sure token that he need hope for nothing from kaufman or the czar his chiefs unanimous that further resistance by him was hopeless he released his son yakub khan from his long harsh imprisonment constituted him regent and then followed the russian mission in the direction of tashkin kaufman would not do so much as allow him to cross the frontier and after a painful illness Shir Ali died on February 21, 1879, near Balk in northern Afghanistan. He was a man who deserved a better fate than that which befell him. His aspiration was to maintain the independence of the kingdom which he ruled with justice, if also with masterfulness, and he could not brook the degradation of subjugation. But unfortunately for him, he was the earthen pipkin which the iron pot found inconvenient there had been plenty of manhood originally in his son and successor yakub khan but much of that attribute had withered in him during the long cruel imprisonment to which he had been subjected by his father sheer ali's death made him nominal master of afghanistan 
but the vigor of his youth time no longer characterized him he reigned but did not rule and how precarious was his position was evidenced by the defection of many leading chiefs who came into the english camps and were ready to make terms after the flight of shir ali some correspondence had passed between yakub khan and major kavnagari but the former had not expressed any willingness for the re-establishment of friendly relations in february of his own accord he made overtures for reconciliation and soon after intimated the death of his father and his own accession to the afghan throne major kavagnari acting on the viceroy's authorization wrote to the new sovereign stating the terms on which the anglo-indian government was prepared to engage in negotiations for peace yakub temporized for some time but influenced by the growing defection of the sitars from his cause as well as by the forward movements of the forces commanded by brown and roberts he intimated his intention of visiting grandamuk in order to discuss matters in personal conference with major kavagnari a fortnight later he was on his way down the passes instructions had been given by the viceroy that yakub khan should be received in the british camp with all honor and distinction when his approach was announced on may eighth kavagnari and a number of british officers rode out to meet him when he reached the camp a royal salute greeted him a guard of honor presented arms and sir sam brown and his staff gave him a ceremonious welcome kavagnari had full powers to represent his government in the pending negotiations as to the terms of which he had received from the viceroy detailed instructions the emir and his general-in-chief daoud shah came to the conference attired in russian uniforms the negotiations were tedious for the emir his minister and his general made difficulties with a somewhat elaborate stupidity but kavignari as a diplomatist possessed the gift of being at once patient and firm and at length on may twenty sixth the treaty of peace was signed and formally ratified by the viceroy four days later by the treaty of gandamuk afghanistan was deprived for the time of its traditional character of a buffer state and its emir became virtually a feudatory of the british crown he was no longer an independent prince although his titular rank and a nominal sovereignty remained to him his position under its articles was to be analogous to that of the mediatized princes of the german empire the treaty vested in the british government the control of the external relations of afghanistan the emir consented to the residence of british agents within his dominions guaranteeing their safety and honorable treatment while the british government undertook that its representatives should not interfere with the internal administration of the country the districts of Pishin, kohram and sibi were ceded to the british government along with the permanent control of the khyber and michnai passes and of the mountain tribes inhabiting the vicinity of those passes all other afghan territory and british occupation was to be restored the obligations to which the treaty committed the british government were that it should support the emir against foreign aggression with arms money or troops at its discretion and that it should pay to him and his successor an annual subsidy of sixty thousand pounds 
commercial relations between india and afghanistan were to be protected and encouraged a telegraph line between kabul and the Koram was forthwith to be constructed and the emir was to proclaim an amnesty relieving all and sundry of his subjects from the punishment for services rendered to the british during the war that the treaty of gundamuk involved our indian empire in serious responsibilities is obvious and those responsibilities were the more serious that they were vague and indefinite yet none the less binding on this account it is probable that its provisions if they had remained in force would have been found in the long run injurious to the interests of british india for that realm afghanistan has the value that its ruggedness presents exceptional obstacles to the march through it of hostile armies having the indian frontier for their objective and this further and yet more important value that the afghans by nature are frank and impartial ishmaelites their hands against all foreigners alike no matter what nationality if this character be impaired what virtue the afghan has in our eyes is lost in his implacable passion for independence in his fierce intolerance of the feringi intruder he fulfils in relation to our indian frontier a kindred office to that served by abatis chevaux de frise and wire entanglements in front of a military position the short-lived treaty for which the sanguine mr stanhope claimed that it had gained for england a friendly an independent and a strong afghanistan may now be chiefly remembered because of the circumstance that it gave effect for the moment to lord beaconfield's scientific frontier the withdrawal of the two northern forces to positions within the new frontier began immediately on the ratification of the treaty of gandamu the evacuation of kandahar being postponed for sanitary reasons until autumn the march of sir sam brown's force from the breezy upland of gandamuk down the passes to peshawar made as it was in the fierce heat of midsummer through a region of bad name for insalubrity and pervaded also by virulent cholera was a ghastly journey that melancholy pilgrimage every halting place in whose course was marked by graves and from which the living emerged gaunt and haggard marching with a listless air their clothing stiff with dried perspiration their faces thick with a mud of dust and sweat through which their red bloodshot eyes looked forth many suffering from heat prostration dwells in the memory of british india as the death march and its horrors have been recounted in vivid and pathetic words by surgeon major evett one of the few medical officers whom participating in it it did not kill end of section one sheer 